Welcome back to the Sip and Feast podcast, episode number 37, the 10 things I wish I knew when I started cooking, Tara. <laughs> I mean, it might be 11. It might be 11. It might be a little bit more than that. Okay. Because I continued to add to it. You did? Yeah. You know, I'm going to miss some really obvious ones, I'm sure, to you. We tried to, like, get ones, uh, I think most of these are fairly important, and you might know all of them, but you might not. And I definitely didn't know these for many years, so. And some of them we had to learn the hard way. Yeah. Trial and error. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really good idea for an episode. I'm glad that my wife came up with it because she comes up with some really good ideas. I thought this was a great one, you know? Thanks. You know, it's funny. Like every time you think you have a good idea, you, you Google your idea, like you Google your headline and not just one person had it. There's like three pages of your actual headline. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing goes for recipes. No matter what yeah. recipe you have, no matter what flavor combination you think you think you're being like new and interesting and authentic. You're not. And then you got a whole epidemic of um butthurt content uh creators, cooks who think that, oh, this person stole my recipe. It's like you stole your recipe. <laughs> and that the person you stole it from stole it from somebody 50 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. There just isn't. Same thing with music, too. But that's not what this podcast is about, is it? No. So the first one on the list, actually, a listener had sent this in as a recommendation for something for us to talk about. Um, and I responded back to him and I said, I said, that's such a great tip. We're going to talk about it in a podcast episode where we talk about all the things that we wish we knew when we started cooking. What is the number one thing you wish you knew when you started cooking that took you maybe years to learn? My number one tip for not destroying your kitchen is mise en place. Did I say that right? I think so. Or maybe it's mise en place. I've I heard, think it's mise I've en heard place. it. I've heard it both ways. Yeah. So mise en place, you basically, when you're doing a recipe, if it calls for a medium onion diced, if it calls for eight cloves of garlic minced, if it calls for a pound of mushroom sliced, make sure you do that all, all your prepping in advance and ideally put them in bowls, containers. It will make cooking a million times easier. Yeah, it, it really will make things so much easier for your cooking. It really will. And I'm actually, Sammy's gonna probably be upset, not that she listens to our podcast, but she's gonna be upset that I'm mentioning her here. But she is 15 years old. She's been baking actually since she was 12 or so. But the one thing that she still doesn't do that we keep telling her, you really should do this. It'll make your life easier is that when she's baking, like let's say she's making muffins, she'll go to the cabinet and take out the flour she needs, puts it in the bowl. Then she'll go to the cabinet and take out the cinnamon that she needs and put it in the bowl. Then she'll melt the butter or yeah. whatever. She does it kind of piecemeal. 
Whereas I'm like, you should just set up all the ingredients you need, measure them all out, and then you can just dump as you go. Definitely. I mean, and it's not like it's, it's probably more important when you're cooking because temperature and, you know, say you're doing a saute and I mean, God, if you're doing Chinese food, forget it. Everything is at ultra high yeah, heat. Yeah, you need it's it all 100% there. 100% essential. But, you know, the term mise en place is, is a French term, obviously. But yeah, even with baking, it's just, it's such a pain to do it the other way. It's, uh, and I get it. I get why Sammy, you know, she's 15. She she doesn't know yeah. yet. I didn't, Took I me didn't a long know time to do too. it. Yeah. Took me a long time. I, you know, you could get away with it if you have like a very large kitchen and you have the ability to put like multiple cutting boards, you could mm -hmm. probably yeah. work as you go, but it's just better to do it all in advance. And that's why I do it in advance. And then when we start the cooking videos, I have everything laid out and I go over it. That's when I do my ingredient monologue that Tara and maybe you are so impressed that I can do it with uh, only one run. Sometimes that two. That is impressive. Sometimes two, right? Sometimes two, but it is impressive that you're able to to do that monologue and it's not scripted or, or I made anything. the recipe the week before, so that helps. Yeah. And then I also am like in the recipe card a lot, like perfecting it. So. Mm -hmm. I so kind you're familiar of, I kind of with what's there, yeah. but that, I mean, I think that even if you are familiar with it, it takes a certain type of person to be able to speak to all that on camera. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's the formula anyway that we practice and we do practice that formula. So the cooking videos are very instructional for you. The number two thing you wish you would have known when you started cooking. Okay. This one goes kind of hand in hand with the mise en place. This is clean as you go. So if you work in a French restaurant, they will obviously, and all restaurants do mise en place, they have to. There's, everything in a restaurant needs to be made in a very short period of time. The only way that it can be made in a short period of time is to have everything made prepped in advance. Mm -hmm. It's very, very much like that. But the cleaning, whether it's, you know, a good restaurant will probably, you know, really be hovering over all, all the different people in the kitchen, making sure they keep a clean, clean work area. Mm -hmm. But it's essential. It, it just is. Like, there's nothing worse than to let dishes pile up in the sink, mm -hmm. dirt and everything get on your cutting board and around on your on your island or your counter. So I always keep one wet rag. Mm -hmm. You could do a tiny bit of bleach with that. You know, you could have like a bucket bucket of water with a tiny bit of bleach diluted and then then I keep a dry a dry cloth multiple dry cloths and the dry cloths can be used for grabbing hot stuff out of the oven I typically will use my wet rag to wipe everything down then I'll just use a dry one to you know get to dry it and one of the reasons to keep a clean sink is if you need to like rinse something or if you need to drain like I know we don't usually use the strainer to drain pasta but if you if you are using that and you need yeah. to strain something you want your sink to be clear that's Absolutely. an important part of of preparing yeah, food everything the water will come up and then yep. you know it could be junky water and it's just not yeah, good just keep it as clean as you can and if you yeah. have a dishwasher you can certainly before you even start cooking if the dishwasher was run the day before empty it, get it completely empty and just start putting things in there as, as you go. All right, up next, this tip is something that we talked about in a previous podcast episode where we were talking about uh, different types of pans. 
But this tip is the hot pan cold oil tip that took me until I was in my 40s to learn. Yeah, so hot pan cold oil is essential if you're going to cook, um, if you're going to use a stainless pan. If you're using a nonstick, it doesn't matter. So nonstick, you, you can put your oil down, you can heat up your pan, let it get hot, add your stuff in. But with a stainless, you have to, or everything will stick. And then you'll never want to use stainless again. So that's, uh, we spoke about this in multiple episodes. We just did a whole pots and pan episode and spoke about it again. But I have a feeling that there is a large portion of people that use stainless a few times and give it up for not a year, but yeah, for decades. That was me. Maybe never to return. That was me yeah. until I learned your trick, which actually we had um, somebody write in and tell us that she just heard that tip and tried it. And now stainless is her go-to. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Okay. And we're running through these kind of quickly yep. so we can get to all of them. The next one, Jim, applies to making soups and chilies. What would you do to soups, chilies, and some other foods to make them so much better? So to make soups and chilies of And mil- stews. And stews and all that stuff that is like a bunch of stuff in a pot. It Just put it in the fridge. Make it in a Dutch oven. Put the cover on. Let it cool. Then put it in your refrigerator. One night, it will be a million times better the next day. If you do two nights, it'll be even better. The flavors just come together. That's, and I'll give you an example why, how you, how you can know this. You can make like any stew. You can make a beef stew. You can make beef bourguignon. You can make lentil soup. Taste it. No matter how much you season it, you there'll be something missing. You'll be like, ah, just stop there. Don't even add anything else to it. Put it in the refrigerator overnight taste it the next morning. You'll be like, wow, what happened here? Just time. That's all that happened. And it's done with Indian food all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's why like that, those, all those pots of sauces, those things have been going for like days. So like, when they put them in the pan and the taste and the flavors, just amazing. But if you try to make Indian food all like an hour before and you're going to eat yeah. it, the things, the flavors don't meld enough. They don't yeah. come together enough. Something's going to be missing if you do that, for sure. I agree. The next thing that you wish you would have known when you started cooking relates to stock. What do you have to say about stock? Beef stock, chicken stock? So beef stock, chicken stock are great. They're phenomenal. But, you know, practically speaking, a lot of you're not going to have it all the time in your house. You can make stocks and you can ultra concentrate them so you can store a lot of them in a small space in your freezer, but you still have to remember to have done it. You can use the Instapot and you can do a quick stock, you know, relatively quickly, but you can just take the easy way out and it will be 90% as good, better than bouillon, beef, chicken base, or they even have like vegetable base and other ones. Awesome product. Yeah. In fact, which what? video were we in where I taste tested your homemade <laughs> The prime stuff. rib. The prime rib you said that. Yeah, uh, the oju the, the, was, yeah, yeah, was the, better with the better than bouillon yeah. than your homemade, which that was like disproving our, we were trying to prove our point that homemade is better, but. We, well, I was also proving to you that our videos aren't scripted. They're not. 
You know, I mean, you could easily tell in that video, it's the end of the video. I had had my one made with homemade stock. And then I had the one the, in the video. The one I made was with the better than bullion. Tara gave that one a better rating. I disagree, but it wasn't what I thought of it. It was what she thought of it. Mm -hmm. So those are awesome. I recommend you use the beef and the chicken base. Costco is your friend there. The bottles, the jars are much larger. I believe that a jar in Costco is about $8, maybe 10. And the large jars you get probably about 100 cups of stock from it versus, so think about this, $10 for that, you get 100 cups of stock versus you buy a box stock in the store. It's 4 to $6 for four cups. The box stocks, I have not found a boxed stock that tastes good. No, they taste they bad. They all taste bad. I think the reason they taste bad is they can't, think about it, like it's not, they can't concentrate, it's not concentrated enough. Yeah, They're very thin. thin. I was gonna say, it's yeah. very thin, it doesn't taste rich. It's just not, it, it just doesn't taste good. You would, you would think that the brands who do that would like at a minimum put a lot of gelatin into it to try to simulate that taste. Maybe the ones that label themselves as bone broths do. I haven't tasted any yeah. of those, but I don't know. I have not found one that I'm impressed with yeah. at all. Up next, Jim. Next thing I personally wish I would have known when I first started cooking that it took me also years to learn was that you should use a kitchen scale. They're oh, super yeah. cheap. And if you are a baker specifically, or if you're going to make bread, or if you are going to make pizza dough, anything like that, you should be using a kitchen scale and you should be going by weight instead of volume. When it comes to baking, I think when it comes to cooking, totally different. You can elaborate on this because I yeah. know you have your whole I mean, feeling on it. So- I agree with what Tara is saying. Cooking in general is, I think it's better to stay with volumetric measurements, which is how, how people in the United States of America do things, which is very crazy, crazy to everybody else in the world. But yeah, having, having a scale for baked goods, you know, knowing how to like zero it out, you know, the tear button, T-A-R-E, uh, just, just so easy to do things because you get it perfect. And not only that, it's actually easier. So let's say you're going to make banana bread, right? And you're measuring your dry ingredients. You put your bowl on the on the scale and you need, you know, two cups of flour, let's say. You know, a cup of flour measured by a regular person is about 120 to 130 grams. Okay. So just for the sake of this example, let's say you need 120 grams of flour, right? You put your bowl on the scale, you measure until it's 120. Then you need sugar. Instead of going and putting your sugar in a different bowl and measuring it, you just tear the the scale yeah. and then you add the sugar directly into the bowl yeah. with the flour. Yeah. It just makes it easier. Yeah. Because you're putting everything into one bowl. And if you watch explain, I don't know if people are getting exactly what you're saying. So what she means is if so say she needed 130 grams of flour. First thing you do is you put your bowl on the scale. Mm -hmm. You hit tear. That zeroes it out. So that means when you add the flour in, you're gonna once it gets to the number 130, mm -hmm. as long as your unit is in grams, yeah. Then you have a, then you have exactly 130. Then you hit tear again, again and, and it, it zeroes it, out. it zeroes that out again. Mm-hmm. 
And now she could put in whatever else she needs. So say she only needs 10 grams of something, then it will be 10, it'll say 10. Then she can zero that out. Mm-hmm. That's right. Provided and the recipe allows you to combine, and most baking recipes will combine the dry ingredients like that. So yeah, for the most part. I mean, if you're making cookies, you would cream the sugar and the and the yeah. butter. But yeah. I was just using this as yep. for illustrative purposes. Yeah, and it's it's great. I mean, it it really is. Now, as far as the what she was saying about cooking in general, so I have a I don't think that it's trying to say this in a way that's not going to be offending to people, everybody else in the world, besides people in the United States. It's just that certain things don't lend themselves to gram measurements very well. So very low amounts of things. Like if I say three tablespoons of parsley, fresh parsley, how many grams is that, Tara? Five? I don't know. I don't know either. It's probably about eight. Okay. Okay. Very, very light ingredient. It's not going to weigh well on your scale, but everybody knows what three tablespoons, everybody in the United States knows what three tablespoons of parsley is going to look like. Mm-hmm. That's one example. Same thing would be like even using like black pepper or something like that. If, you, if black pepper, basically a teaspoon of black pepper is going to be about four grams, three grams. Yeah. Like how would you measure it's a hard quarter? hard to measure these little bits. How would you measure a quarter teaspoon of of something that would be really hard to measure. You wouldn't get an accurate measurement. That's why you're better off knowing what a quarter, like what that is. So it's almost like the superior way of cooking would be knowing the volumetric measurements, what they look like, Mm -hmm. but then also using the gram measurements. Now let's talk about cooking where gram measurements are really good. So we just did the buffalo wings and we did the prime rib. And so the prime rib and buffalo wings both worked off of the dry brine principle, okay? So that means you're putting salt on them, putting them in the fridge overnight. Osmosis uh, happens, so the salt goes in, water comes up, it goes back down, it goes up, down, up, down, and it just makes it juicy, the meat juicy. And typically you would wanna go at about a one to one and a half percent ratio of salt. That's what you wanna do. You wanna make sure you're doing the weight. Volume, you know, you might, might oversalt it. You might mess it up. But if you know that you're going to do, say, a 1.25% salt ratio, it doesn't matter what salt you use, okay? If you use diamond kosher, you know, diamond crystal kosher, if you use Morden's kosher, if you use uh, ultra-fine sea salt, if you use table salt, it doesn't matter, okay? Because it's going by weight. Mm -hmm. That's where where you can still get the same results, so if you had 4,000 grams of meat, then you would, if you were going to do 1.25%, you would have 50 grams of salt. That's where the weight really helps you. Mm-hmm. So if somebody gives you a tablespoon amount, did that person specify what salt it was, yeah. what kind? Because if you didn't, then that's a big difference. You know, it's diamond kosher is, takes up half, diamond crystal takes up half the volume of table salt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like weight-wise takes up half the volume. So these are simple things, but you got to commit them, like you got to know them, or this is like a kind of how to read a recipe. Did we even talk about how to read a recipe in here? That should be one of them. I have it later. Okay, later later on? Okay, we'll get to that. All right, let's go to the next one. Take your meat out of the fridge before, like before using it. Yeah. In advance, I should say not before you, of course you're going to take your meat out of the fridge before you cook with it. No, I mean, listen, I- 
I no, smoke you're not about gonna, it. No, I know. You're not going to cook with it in the fridge. That's what I'm saying. Oh, like, yeah, you take like, your fridge out. Take it out ahead of time. Like before, I don't know, what, an hour before? Let it kind of warm up. You don't want to be using working with cold meat, right? I don't want or to. Or chilled meat, I should say. I definitely don't want to. And I'll give you an example. We'll stick on the, we'll stay with the prime rib. So if you take a prime rib, a big, you know, let's say an eight pound prime rib out of the refrigerator. Refrigerator's 44 degrees Fahrenheit. Roughly your refrigerator might be 45. Take it out of the refrigerator. It's going to take X amount of time. This is just simple math. There's, you know, you can do an equation for it. It's going to take a certain amount of time for to gain a degree based on the room temperature being say 70, 70 degrees. Okay. Which is average room temperature for most homes. It will, as it warms up, it will be less time that you have to put it in the oven and the temperature will start to equalize the exterior and the interior together. You know, you can't really go past a certain amount. The FDA says then it's not safe. Like you're not going to leave a prime rib out for 24 hours before cooking it. But you know, if you do a couple hours, it, it will be better. Uh, I, I tend to like leave it about like three or four and that, that'll uh, really, really help you. Like now, I spoke about this, I believe, in a previous episode. America's Test Kitchen did a frozen steak, and they said it, like, comes out just as good. And uh, Ethan Chablowski, he did um, a video on it, and I think he said it was good. So I was all excited, and I did it, and it was horrible, the steak. You know, you, you had it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a reason why steakhouses do not cook frozen steaks, and it doesn't just have to do with timing. They just don't come as good. So yeah, I tr- trust me on this. Or actually don't trust me on this. Go buy like an $80 porterhouse and freeze one and then leave. let the other one, you know, take it out of the fridge when it's thawed, room temperature, and you be the judge on which one is better. It's not even close. Not even close. So take out the meat. It'll help with everything, mm-hmm. you know, cooking. Take out the meat. Jim, have you ever sliced a lemon, a lime, an orange, and nothing came out of it? Well, that's one of the most frustrating things that happens. So what can you do? I heard if you roll it, like you take it and you just roll it down the table. Mm-hmm. It will get juicy. You heard or you know. I mean, um, this is one of my favorite kitchen tips that I didn't know until I was older. But yeah, you roll it. And I'm not, you don't just like push it and let I was it roll. Jo- I was joking. You gotta, yeah. Okay. I, was I, joking. I, I figured <laughs> you take your lemon or your lime and you like, really, it's like almost like you're massaging you're it. You're pressing it. You gotta, against, you gotta like force it into yeah, the table. Yeah, you're massaging it against yeah. the table or whatever flat surface yeah, you got board. it on, cutting board. And what I like to do after I roll it is I like to rinse it, which I know we you ta- you are like anti rinsing things for some reason. I uh, look. I'm, no, 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 no. You are. I like to rinse my citrus fruit before I slice into it because I don't know who touched it before I did. A lot of people touched it. Yes, yeah, so well, exactly. Who. I I don't want their cooties <laughs> in my lemon juice, so I will wash it, but I won't wash it under cold water. I will run it under warm warm water because the rolling and the warm water is warming it up and it's making it juicier inside. I don't know the science behind it. I'm sure there is science. And that way when you squeeze it, it's so 
juicy and you get the most out of it that you can because there's nothing worse than slicing into some citrus and it's like the Mojave Desert. Yeah, you know what it is though? Some citrus is just, no matter how much you roll it, it's gonna be, it doesn't have a lot of juice. That's another thing with recipe writing. When they say the juice of the one lemon, it's not good because first of all, one lemon could be, you know, like the size of a orange almost. Mm -hmm. And then another lemon could be the size of a small lime. Yeah, it is better to, to yeah. if you're writing a and, recipe. And I have started, I probably the last two years I've been writing recipes to reflect that. So I'll say a table tablespoon of lemon juice, a fresh lemon juice, typical lemon, like an average lemon, not like a, a mutant lemon. Like you'll get about two to three tablespoons of juice from it. Mm -hmm. But Tara's right. If you roll it, you'll get more, you'll get more juice out of it. As far as washing goes, yeah, you probably should do that. I guess I always got in the habit of not with the lemons and I would take like a paper towel, like a little damp and just wipe it off because if I wanted zest and it's wet, I feel like you can't, you can't really mm -hmm. zest it properly. But I will say one one type of produce that I would always wash, always, are greens. And specifically like herbs, like parsley, cilantro. They're loaded with dirt. Well, not just dirt. You know, you always hear about like, you know, somebody could go like in, you know. Go to the bathroom. Like a worker could just, yeah, be going to the bathroom. E. coli. They can do a number one easily on a whole, like a whole bunch of cilantro, but they're not going to do a number one on lemons that are in a tree. Yeah, no, I know, but yeah. but no, I all right. When you Th that's first, what I'm saying. When you first said it, I thought you meant the the people who are picking it may have gone to the bathroom and like maybe have not washed their hands and then they're touching it. I think that's the least thing people need to worry about. You need to worry about not even just if a human did a number one on it. What happens if like a animal did you well, know? I, I didn't even think of that but yeah. anyway i you should you should because wash me, all your produce let me tell you like i watched them what you watch i recommend you watch videos of how your the produce that we buy is packaged if you do watch these videos you will probably i don't know you'll probably be washing your stuff for, for a half an hour before you'll eat it because like i saw it they were just they have like a bagger and then the, the, the workers they just grab it out of the ground mm-hmm I'm not talking about in a in a hot in a greenhouse or anything. They were like in a field, grab the lettuce, go walk up, push it in the bag. The bagger goes like this and closes uh, it. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, that, okay. So you should be washing it. The triple wash doesn't help either. Remember that frog? That yeah, we, we talked the, about that oh, okay. in a previous yeah, episode. Yeah. There was a frog in a triple wash bag of spinach. The next thing that you wish you knew when you started cooking: pasta water. Pasta water. Okay. Pasta water, really good um, to obviously emulsify a sauce because a starchy pasta water will help you do that. It will also help you thin it. So I'm gonna give you two examples. And somebody just asked me, uh, messaged me on Instagram today too. They said, they're like, how can you use it to thin? It has too much salt in it. Well, you don't wanna like make your salt pasta water like the sea, like is a bad trope that constantly gets said. Mm -hmm. You really don't. The sea levels three and a half percent, four percent salinity. Um way too much salt. You don't want that. You want about one, one percent, one and a quarter, maybe one and a half percent. That amount of sodium is fine to thin with. It'll, it'll increase the saltiness a little bit of your pasta, but you're adding more liquid to it too. So you know it's not it's not like you're taking salt in a salt, like pinching salt and throwing it on. You're adding liquid to to it as well. And that's when it will help. So whenever you remove the pasta, I always recommend you use a spider to do it. 
instead of, uh, and I don't like the inserts because they're impossible to clean, but just a spider, grab your pasta out, keep the whole hot pot of pasta water there, and then use as much as you need to emulsify. And then if you're waiting, you know, you know, the reality of cooking for your family is not everybody will get to the dinner table when you want them to get to the dinner table. They might be working on something for five minutes. So you just take a little bit more pasta water, loosen it up again. So it's magic. It really is. It I mean, is. people go so far as to save their pasta water, which I think is silly because I'm just going to have more pasta water the next time I make pasta. Exactly. I don't think you need to save it, but it is good. If you are going to make, like, let's say you're cooking for yourself, you're a single person and you are making a whole pound of pasta with the intent to have leftovers, you can definitely save the pasta water. And then when you go to reheat it the next day for lunch, add a little bit of the pasta water to it to reconstitute it, especially if it's a cream sauce. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, often I'll just put regular water because I'll forget it. You can, point. but yeah. it'll be better if you yeah. if you use the pasta water. So for that purpose, I would say save it. All right, this is a really important thing to know. I think use a good sharp knife, and make sure that you're holding it properly. Not just holding the knife properly, but make sure your other hand that's not holding the knife is holding whatever it is that you're cutting properly. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? And you. You can elaborate on this. So when you're cutting a knife, cut when you're cutting something, let's say you're cutting, I don't know, uh, a carrot, you don't want to hold it with your thumb out, right? You want to hold it so that your knuckle is kind of turned in. That way, if the knife comes down and it cuts something, it's going to not cut the tip of your finger off. It might cut like a different part of your hand. Yeah, like this. If it's if your if your hand slips. So like instead yeah. of like you know, a lot of times you'll have a tendency when you're doing like the claw grip, you'll want to like inch this thumb forward, mm -hmm. and then like if this thumb is a little bit past like your knuckle here, it could get cut. Yeah, and it could happen very quickly it too. It can, and it does. If your knives are sharp, which they should be, yeah, it will it will remove a piece of of your skin. You know, you don't have to cut super sharp, uh, super fast, like you see, like in TikTok videos or whatnot. You know, they're like speeding it up and they're and they're doing it. You don't. You don't. You're not in a race. You want to be safe, but yeah, a pinch grip is what I prefer. Uh, a lot of people like a bolster on a knife. The knife I have right now has a bolster on it. I actually got it as a gift from um, a viewer, Patreon member, uh, a longtime Patreon member, and it has a bolster on it. And I've been using it. Uh, I do typically prefer a knife without a bolster. Uh, a bolster is something that where the handle meets like the sharp edge, so it'll like the metal will flare out. And then a, a knife without a bolster will just be, it'll just be completely straight, the metal. So the back of that knife can be a potential spot to cut you versus the bolster kind of protects you. And you can still do a pinch grip with a bolster, though it's a little bit harder to. It's easier to do a pinch grip with a, a knife without a bolster. Pinch grip gives you more control so the knife won't want to go uh, past 90 degrees in each direction. And speaking of knives, I didn't have this on my list, but since we're talking about possibly injuring yourself in the kitchen, if you're using a mandolin, which I know you've used when you made the deli salad recipes, like yeah. the cucumber salad, potato salad, you definitely want to use the guard because I've heard from so many people that they've cut part of their fingers off using a mandolin. It's for real. It's not a made up urban um, legend. For real. Yeah. 
It's not an urban legend. It Definitely is. use the guard. Don't don't skip yeah, out on that. I'm knocking on wood right now, like loudly, because I've been, you know, I've been spared in for knife injuries in the kitchen and with the mandolin. I, I think I mean I was doing this stuff for many years prior, but when I got into the wood carving, uh, which all the spoons that like many of the spoons in the videos, especially in the older videos. Again, part of the reason why I don't use this, the carved spoons is because I'm using the wood spoon that Brant also got me, which was the uh, roux spoons. Mm -hmm. So I use them a lot now. But a lot of the uh, the big ladle and a lot of the other ones were carved by me. So I had to really learn how to use knives that are essentially way sharper than chef's knives. And I mean, that's kind of not the case. A, a knife, when you, any type of knife you can get to, super razor sharp, but you know, the, the carving knives being sharp is so much more important than when you're like, you could be a chef could be in a restaurant and a professional chef and they might steal their knife a couple times a night. A wood carver will have to hone their knives much more frequently. Okay. And they'll use like an actual uh, strop to do this, like with compound. It's like a leather piece of leather that's on a hardwood board. So I was like always having to keep sharp edge there and knowing how sharp those are that like one miss could cut me very quickly. I would use the protective gloves too, the carving gloves for it. But uh, I guess I just kind of respect, respect it in general. And I think a healthy respect for these things is paramount. I mean... It just is. And really when you're going to run into problems is when you're distracted. So, you know, like your kid comes in into the kitchen, you know, you can take your eyes off mm -hmm. um, or you're running out of time. So you're trying to chop things quicker. Yeah. Or your knife is wet or your hand is wet. Don't make sure you're, you dry your hands off too. And your knife, yeah. you can slip. And you use, that, use that. that cloth every time to, to keep your knife mm -hmm. yeah, dry. Yeah, I've done that. Um, okay. That was 10, but we added a few more when okay. we started going through the list. Let's go through them quick. Next one, read the recipe all the way through. This does not just apply to cookbooks. This applies to online recipes. Yeah. You should read the entire thing, including the notes, before you start to make a recipe. Make sure you understand what the steps involve. Make sure you understand the state that the ingredients should be in. Usually the ingredients section of a recipe will say, you know, one medium onion diced or a cup of olive oil divided. Get yourself familiar with some of the terminology that's used in yeah. a recipe and read it through and understand it before you decide to to embark on it, especially if it's a complicated recipe. Like if you're going to make pizza or bread, something that's more difficult, yeah, definitely read it through. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, when I started writing recipes professionally, it was a learning experience to say the least. You know, we try to educate ourselves more, try to really adopt best practices. And for many years, decades, I believe people were using the recipe writer's handbook kind of as gospel. That's changed now, too. There's a newer uh, book written by someone else that has given some um, alternative recommendations. But a lot of 
standard writing should, you, you can normally tell when you come across like a site that takes their audience seriously and sites that don't. Again, not to belabor the point of how much I hate TikTok, but it's just, it's not good, the instructions. Even like when uh, when I see like, and this is for popular creators, they might have, you know, they might have like 3 million uh, subs on TikTok. The instructions are poor. They're very poor. And they're, it's it's all, it's all substance. It's like all just- It's sizzle, no steak. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's all, it's all fake. It's not real. So- yeah, you gotta kind of tell every you gotta tell everything because you have to go on the assumption that like person doesn't really know how to cook. If the person was an expert cook, they wouldn't need my recipe. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't need yeah. that person's recipe at all. They would know how to do it. So it's yeah. uh, kind of there's a fine line there. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is definitely pay attention to the state in which the recipe creator is telling you the ingredients should be in. So what I mean by that oh, yeah. is if they say butter soften to room temperature, it shouldn't be butter that you just take out of the fridge. It should actually be butter that's yeah softened to room temperature. And that'll be in the note. Like I always like the way we use WP Recipe Maker, which is the gold standard of recipe cards. Like it's the biggest blogs, food blogs, recipe sites in the world use this program. It's 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 the best. It's better than any other way. It provides schema data to Google so Google can see the information on the recipe and output it. Okay? It's there's ways to do it there better. Another little tip is when you read a recipe, often good recipe writers will include the recipe ingredients in the order that you need them. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there are certain exceptions. So often if you do see pasta recipes, the pasta will still be stated first, even though you're not going to need that pasta probably till like the tenth ingredient down, because you're making your you're always making your sauce first for pasta. Mm-hmm. But yeah, familiarize yourself with that. If stuff like looks like garbage and it comes out like garbage, it probably is garbage. And then other there's other ones that we use as references for us on how to do things. People that are like at the top, the top of the recipe writing game, and um. Yeah, there's, there's certain things that are worth emulating and ones that aren't. For sure. Yeah. All right. What should you do with your fat? You should save your fat. Your fat that's on your body you want to get rid of, but you want to <laughs> save the fat that you get in the store because you you know you paid money for it. And I'll give an example quick. I'll give two quick examples. You buy a chuck roast. We just bought, how many chuck roasts did we just buy from Costco? Four? Yeah, Three. four packs. Yeah, yeah. And the packs had like one and a half uh, ro- mm-hmm. roasts in each. Yeah, because they were on sale, but because we use them for a lot of recipes. Price is so much better in Costco for those for those chuck roasts. It's like thirteen dollars in Whole Foods. It's like four in Costco. But um, in the in a typical chuck roast, typical chuck roast will be about two and a half to three and a half pounds. There'll always be like a huge chunk of fat in the middle of it, like thick fat that you're not. Like, you you know, even if you like cubing your meat, you're probably going to cut a lot of that out and discard it. You want it. But if you save it, you can use that fat to say like in a beef bourguignon. Beef bourguignon, I know, isn't the best example because it always starts with pan uh, with bacon, you know, uh, you know, salt pork or whatever to start it. And that's the fat that that's starting with. But say say it doesn't. You can use the beef fat instead of using olive oil. Yeah to do your initial saute. Yeah, or for people who don't eat pork yes. and you want to make beef bourguignon, start it with yeah. the lard. Yeah, 
And then another one, obviously, is bacon. When you make bacon in a pan or you do it in the oven, whatever, pour off all the fat, just keep it in a jar. That's how mm-hmm. they did it in the old days. There's no reason that why we shouldn't be doing the same thing right now. Yep. It's free. The next one is a tip that I have. It has to do with eggs. It's actually a two-part tip. So first of all, anytime you're using eggs, I recommend you crack the egg into a small bowl and then you add it to whatever it is that you're adding it to. Let's say you're making a frittata and you have already cracked, let's say the frittata calls for eight eggs and you've cracked seven eggs into your bowl. You crack the eighth egg and you put it into the bowl and that eighth egg is bad. Well, guess what? You have to get rid of all eight eggs that you just cracked. Whereas if you just crack it into a small bowl, transfer it in, you'll be so much better off. Now, my second part of this is if you are making a dish, probably a dessert, that you need egg whites and egg whites alone where you need to beat them so that they come to stiff or medium peaks, you need to make sure that there is absolutely no fat whatsoever. Otherwise, they will never become stiff or never even become medium. Yep, It will just never happen. So before you go ahead and do that, what you want to do is whatever bowl you're putting the egg whites into, you want to make sure it's completely clean of any grease. Sometimes when you when you wash a glass bowl yep. and you stick it in the dishwasher, there's some grease left over yes. in it. So you want to make sure it's completely clean, dry as a bone. You also want to make sure that when you're separating the egg from the egg yolk, that there is no yep. egg yolk even the tiniest speck, and I'm telling you this because I learned this the hard way when I was making a pavlova, even the tiniest speck of yolk will not, will render it useless, yep. basically. So you want to make sure that you're doing that when you are using egg whites. Like I said, pavlova is, is a reason you do it. We use egg whites in the almond cookies. flourless, yeah, the almond cookies, a flourless chocolate cake. Yep. That we use. Yeah, they're awesome. Doing egg whites and like beating them to medium mm-hmm. or stiff peaks and then using them for cookies and stuff. It's just, it creates this like sticky, like substance that mm-hmm. just everything just stick absorbs to it. It's, yeah. it's actually a really cool thing, but that's something that needs to, I think, be stated or. Yeah, I don't. In fact, I don't even know if we do state it in our all of our recipes. We might want to look back yeah, at that. Yeah, you just you can't go yeah. willy nilly, and it's not like you're making an egg. If you're making an egg white omelet, yeah, who cares if there's like yep. a speck of yolk in it? But no, if you're using it where you need to beat it, yeah, make sure it's clear of any fat. Do you know what's funny? Um, you know egg egg whites when you get them at um a deli or yeah a restaurant, typically they're not taken from no i know they're just from that that egg white container yeah maybe you know that all right the next tip i learned this recently when you're baking cookies let's say you have two baking sheets yet you need like four baking sheets worth of cookies you if you put your cookie dough directly onto the pan that like was maybe out of the oven for like 10 minutes it's still gonna cause your cookies to spread Oh, no, I know. I'm aware of this. Okay. I just made so, a ton of cookies. Yeah. So yeah. I actually had somebody ask me this question. Um, I think it was on the lemon ricotta cookies. It was around Christmas time. And she said hers spread. And I said, you probably 
put them onto a hot baking yep. sheet. Because, or warm, even or, warm. Or warm. Yep. So I know it's extra money and maybe takes up extra space, but I think a good tip is to have maybe a, like at least four baking sheets. Oh, forget four. Or even... Or how even many, more. Tell, tell them how many we have. Well, we have we have a food business. No, so but even if more. we even if we didn't. I mean, I think I have four in just for myself, but you probably have like eight. No, I think combined we probably have twenty. All right. And these are half sheets. We also have about half another sheets. probably have another ten uh quarter sheets. Yeah. So quarter sheets are nice too. It's a worthwhile investment. And when you're making cookies specifically and you don't want your cookies to spread, make sure you're putting it on room temperature. Or cool. Yeah, they need sheets. to be they need to be cooled. That's just really important what Tara said. I mean, you know, I don't want to get down a cookie rabbit hole here, but uh, you know, cookies are they're they're simple once you get the hang of it, but just even the even the aspect of putting your dough into the refrigerator for 30 minutes and then then boiling them will make it first of all, you get a more uniform ball and the cookie will pre- it will prevent the cookie from spreading as fast mm-hmm. because it's starting at a colder temperature. So, yeah, and then obviously, like Tara said, using it's so tempting when you're pulling your cookies off the warm sheet to just put the next batch on there and don't do it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, another thing, cookie rabbit hole. It's good to have like six cookie scoopers, like a really small one, then the next size, next size, next size. And they go by um, numbers like a 10, a 10 size, 20, 30, 40, yeah. all that. They 40 all like mean different like tablespoon yeah. or two tablespoon scoop. Yeah, 30, 40 is um, basically give you a medium cookie. That's like the most used one for kind of the standard home cookie mm-hmm. that you'd be making. All right, last tip. It's kind of, kind of an obvious one, Jim. What is it? Okay, this is important. Use your head. Use your noggin. If the recipe from the most the best creator in the world or the best chef is really not going right for you and it's like giving disastrous results, it doesn't mean that creator or chef is a bad creator or chef. It means that the recipe is probably written wrong. Mm -hmm. That's where your head comes into play. I'll give you a couple examples. Really only have one that comes to mind quickly. So Lydia uh, Bastianich, like all the food I make is basically the food she makes, all right? Like it's, she's like kind of like the queen of making like Italian-American food. Um, though I guess she would say she makes more Italian food, but I, I wouldn't really say that. It's it's Italian-American, which is everything that's here in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, in her, one of her cookbooks, she has like 15 of them. I, I don't know which one. I have a few of them. There was a pesto recipe. And this is, I was making this like 20 years ago. And gave it proportions. And it was like two cups of basil leaves and, you know, whatever amount of uh, pecorino, a little bit of garlic, the pine nuts. And it was like three tablespoons of olive oil. And I'm pretty positive about this. I, I think I still have the book. And three tablespoons of olive oil, the blender food processor wouldn't even move. It was just like, might as well have been completely dry. Mm-hmm. Three tablespoons is essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. So then I put in four, then six, then I'm up to like a half a cup and it's still not doing it. And I'm like taking my wooden spoon and pushing everything down when it's off. And, you know, finally, after like three quarter cup of oil, finally moved enough. And that's just a learning experience for 
someone like me who was like a novice cook at the time. But, you know, that could like, if you're not using your head, you're not using your noggin, you could just then not get a result there. And then you just like, it's a waste. So Mm -hmm. you have to, you have to think stuff through, you know, some recipe says 425. And what if your oven is very inaccurate and it's 460 in the oven and everything starts burning? These are things that you have to consider. Maybe your oven needs to be lowered. Maybe you got to test your oven to see the actual real temperature. Mm-hmm. Maybe the recipe, you know, meant to do it in conventional and then you you have the convection setting on. The convection setting will add about 25 to 30 degrees. Essentially, that's what it adds to, uh, to a recipe mm-hmm. because it circulates the air. Yeah. So use your head. Use your head. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, like, that that Lydia recipe was a misprint. That's what it was. It had to be. It was a There's misprint. no way. It she was, was just not adding that little. Yeah. And she's, you know, she she's not writing her recipe books. Like, maybe that's not clear to all of you, okay? She's not, all right? She's running an empire. Like, she's got- She's probably consulted- on her, she probably has final say yeah, over what's going into it. She might, you don't know the amount of say she's having in it. Like yeah. Gordon Ramsay's got 28 shows on TV. You think he, and he's got like all his restaurants. You think he knows everything that's going no. on in these things? I mean, no. it's impossible, no. you know? So yeah. yeah, you can't blame, you can't blame them. All right, let's move into questions. Jim, this question comes from Michelle. I eat mostly a plant-based diet. I do live in Wisconsin, so avoiding cheese completely will never ha- will probably never happen. And I love that your recipes use whole and simple ingredients and that many of the recipes can be made plant-based. One recipe I'm gonna try is the Tuscan bean soup. I was going to use canned beans, but something I've noticed when making soup with canned beans is that sometimes the skins will start to fall off and float around the soup. They are also kind of tough. Would using dry beans eliminate this problem? Are there certain beans that have a more tender skin? So Michelle, I assume you're using cannellini beans and cannellini beans have a thin a thin outer shell on them, but I would I would guess that maybe not all brands are created equal. There's some might be using older beans. Uh, if using dried beans will work for you, yeah, I mean, as long as you prep your dried beans, properly. If you don't prep your dried beans properly, you're going to have the same problems, if not bigger problems. Uh, we actually just had a question the other day. We had to, it was, it was actually for the Tuscan bean soup. Tara, you created, a, you created a fact, uh, an FAQ on that, on mm-hmm. that recipe yeah. because somebody asked about how to get dried beans soft. This is verbatim. But like I, I, I don't have, we don't, I don't have the recipe, uh, the, our recipe in front of us, but in order to get beans soft and it's fine that I'm doing it this way because it's going to be different every time for you. If you buy a bag of beans that's a couple years old, really, no matter how much you cook them, they just might not work. That's why I'm more of a proponent of cans. But if you buy fresh, like fresher beans that, you know, it says expiration like 2026 or whatnot, put them in a pot, fill them up with water, just cover them with water, put a pinch of salt in there. Don't believe the 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 fake information about salt and beans, it's wrong, okay? You put a little bit of salt in there, turn it up to like medium to medium high, let it start bubbling, let it go for like 10 minutes, then you could just turn the heat down to low, put the cover on. Even with the cover on, it's gonna evaporate 
at about the hour mark. Check them out. If it needs more water, add more water. Check for tenderness. They're probably not going to be tender at that point. Let them keep going on low. Check them an hour from that point. And then continue to do this until they get soft. What I like to do, the easiest way I like to do this when I'm going to use dried beans is the night before I start this process. So maybe I'll be an hour into it. Maybe I'll be two hours into it. Once they're kind of soft, but they're not good enough yet, I can turn the heat off completely, keep the cover on, leave it on the stovetop overnight. That whole entire time, that soaking time overnight, the next day, they will be soft. They will be ready to go. And ideally, they'll hold on to most of their shells. The shells, um, the skins, the skins, I mean, the skins can burst when you put maybe too much heat on them for too long of a period of time. As far as the cans with the skins, I've never really had an issue with them. So I, my only guess is it could be the brand you were using. I typically will use like, what what brand do we use? We is use, it Stop and Shop store no, brand? No, no. We'll sometimes use Cento, sometimes Goya. Goya, And then sometimes yeah. the um, the Whole Foods, the 365. Yeah. So, so whatever, yeah. whatever yeah. store I'm at. That's what I'm yeah. grabbing. Yeah. And I haven't had that problem with, with cannellini beans. I think that's more of a problem with like chickpeas. Chickpeas, definitely. Yeah, where the, the shells separate. Chickpeas, um, maybe I'm, I mean, I'm going on a limb here and I'm assuming you're using cannellini beans, but if maybe if you're using like great white northern beans, is that what they're called? Maybe they have a thicker one. I don't know that though, for sure. I just used those for a chili. We used um, that ch chicken chili. I just use the northern beans. They're actually smaller than cannellinis. Okay. I didn't have that problem with yeah. them. But yeah. yeah. I don't know. Let us know, Michelle. Um, I hope that helps. And yeah, I mean, the cost benefit of going with dried beans versus canned, to be honest with you, I think canned are cheaper because canned, you're not spending time. You have to actually spend time and your time has to be worth more than nothing. So when you add that up, you're losing, you are losing to the, to the cost of the canned beans. Mm -hmm. If you don't put a value on your time, you're not valuing your time properly, okay. right? I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm just saying like, it, it involves like you have to either be setting a timer and going downstairs. Mm -hmm. You say you can't go out during that period of time because you're checking on them. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's a little bit of work there. It's true. Yep. All right, next question. This is from Tom. Jim, can you use nonstick pans with tomato sauce? Instructions came with my nonstick pan and was not recommended to use with foods high in acid like tomatoes. I feel like we've gotten this question before, but I think it was about cast iron, not about nonstick. Yeah, Tom, I never heard this for nonstick pans. I'm curious what brand you have. I know like kind of the standard ones, um, they're fine to use tomato sauce with. Uh, you know, I... I've never heard of it. I mean, normally the the thing that people will always recommend is not to use aluminum with tomato sauce. Mm -hmm. Just an aluminum, bare aluminum, not not a coated one, which is a non-stick. Not most non-stick pans, pots and pans are essentially coated aluminum. But maybe if the manufacturer is telling him to not use it, then maybe there's something in it that yeah. maybe you should. Yeah, you if know, the manufacturer's telling you that, Tom, mm -hmm. I would listen to what the ma the manufacturer knows. Yeah. So if you want to write to us and tell us what brand, we'll take another look at it. But I would say, yeah, yeah. maybe they know something we don't, and yeah. maybe there's something in there that could react with the with something acidic. We got like this set of pots and pans from this company uh, called Maiden. They're just like an online company, and they sent us like an eight quart stainless pot. 
And then they also had sent us an eight quart stain. I guess it's stainless with with the uh, nonstick coating on it. It could be aluminum though. I, I would have to weigh it to, to know for sure. There's no no literature there saying that you can't use the tomato or anything like that. And I don't think tomatoes are terribly high in acid anyway. Like they're not as high as vinegar. But yeah, I would listen to what the manufacturer says. Mm-hmm. You can leave us email questions to podcast at sipandfeast.com. Or you can send me an audio or video uh, through Instagram is great. It works really easily because you just message. Or you could uh, also send that through email too, whichever way you prefer. If you do send the audio or video, I'll just pl- I just play it right on here so it's easy. All right, we'll see you next time.